Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are then. We find ourselves yet again uh, at another crossroads this morning. The sun is shining, the public are out and about, the cyclists are moving about en masse. It can only mean one thing. It's time to get everything back to normal, isn't it? More and more conversations are being had by people who are, quite frankly, ignoring the advice of the Brothers Grimm, witty and Valance, and simply getting on with their lives. The sage advisors are still banging on uh, about the modelling, still wreaking havoc on the economy with wild abandon, and still issuing dire warnings about what might go horribly wrong later in the summer. Meanwhile, our former European partners have decided it's a good time for countries to stand together, to cooperate with one another and fight the pandemic together. Well, that's nice, isn't it? It certainly makes a change. Only last week, they were urging export bans on vaccines, and a couple of months ago, they threatened to erect a hard border in Northern Ireland. Still, at least we've got a brand new briefing room to watch Boris Johnson in, and it only costs 2.6 million quid. As Michael Deakin said in the Telegraph this morning, how could something so expensive end up looking so cheap? We'll be asking George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, now chairman of Portland Communications, what he made of it all. Uh, 03444991000. Coming up later on, we'll be taking a look at the latest from Batley Grammar School, where the suspended teacher who showed pupils cartoons of Muhammad in class has spoken out about how he now fears for his life. Dr. Rakib Hassan will explain what's going on. And Donald McLeod will bring us the latest from Scotland, where there is a leaders' debate tonight. And we'll go down to Australia as well, where an extraordinary story has unfolded involving boys being made to apologise to girls as a group for rapes committed by their gender. Those are their words, rapes committed by their gender. This is as secondary schools in this country are being accused of having a culture of sexual abuse. 0344 499 1000. We'd love to hear from parents this morning as to what your school, uh, your kids' school is like. And on the one year anniversary of Megxit, when the Duke and Duchess of Netflix decided to leave the royal family and remove HRH from their titles, we'll check in with royal author Angela Levin for an update. And we'll be asking her about the latest scandal around that Diana interview with Martin Bashir. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. How are you spending this most glorious of days? Spring has definitely sprung, ladies and gentlemen. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio now a big picture on the front page of the daily telegraph this morning which i shall show you boris johnson chris witty and patrick valance uh the three musketeers if you like uh, standing before two union jacks not one but two uh with podiums made up of what looks entirely like some kind of uh, uh asbestos free wood um, and they do look a bit wooden, don't they? 2.6 million quid for that. Let's ask George Pascoe Watson whether it was all worth it. George, very good morning to you. 
Uh, good morning to you. Well, I mean, as Michael Deacon says, and I'm not always a fan of quoting other uh, newspaper columnists, uh, how do they manage to make something so expensive look so cheap? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's a, I think it's quite nice, actually. I think it's quite bold. I know that lots of people quite like the previous, which was the authentic Downing Street look. Yeah. But this day and age, of course, uh, modern communications, the technology and innovation that's around means that there are lots of things you can do to make something look uh, pretty flat on the front, but actually behind it, there's lots of technology, which is quite useful. Yes. For me, it's less about the platform. It's more about the message. Yes. And what did you make of the message yesterday? It was certainly more upbeat than last Monday, where, which depressed me so much that I came in on Tuesday morning calling for Boris Johnson's resignation. Yes, I don't think uh, I don't think you're going to be in the New Year or, or the birthday honours list anytime soon, Mike. Uh, but you probably wear that as a badge of honour. Mm. Um, I think Absolutely. the truth is, you know, the Prime Minister is in a, again in that very very difficult position where uh, caution has to be his watchword. That's where he's decided to uh, make his future in caution. He spent uh, much of the last year trying to balance things where there was uh, hope but also caution. And in the end, he feels that uh, he overplayed the hope too much. Uh, and that's what ended up being a third lockdown, which we've now been in for nearly five months. And this time he has made a political commitment for us not to go back into lockdown. And therefore, he's going to do everything he can. And that means to suppress our exuberance. What I did take away from yesterday, Mike, uh, and, I, and I hate to depress us all again, is he, for the first time he did not rule out uh, another lockdown should things mm. take a turn for the worst. And, and I only say that because my antenna are geared towards the little comments mm. which perhaps belie uh, a, a further story down the line. Well, that is the trouble, and that has been the kind of um, description, if you like, of the last year, hasn't it? Because almost everything that he said he wants to do uh, has ended up not being done quite in the way that he originally suggested it would be. Well, that's right. But I'm going to give him a massive slice of support here because uh, I think I think I want to give him the credit because there's not a single human being on the planet who can get this right. Uh, and that's just the nature of the fast changing uh, COVID pandemic. Don't forget, there's different strains we haven't even seen yet. Uh, and although the uh, manufacturers of the vaccine are very confident that their base vaccine will be able to be tweaked depending on what uh, strains yet emerge, we do know if we look just over the English Channel, we can see in France and in Italy and in Germany and in other countries, really, really desperate situations beginning to happen again in those countries. And we know that we're typically three or four weeks behind what happens on the continent. And, well, that depends, though, doesn't it? Because it could be that they are actually three or four weeks behind us now because we had what they're having in January. So my belief would be that actually it's gone the other way for a change. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, and you could be right, <laughs> but but you're not the prime minister, and neither am I. And somebody has to make the decision, and he's making the decision, are based on what has gone before. And I think his view is, if I took the view that actually we're ahead of the pack now, and I got it wrong, there would be no mercy for me. Well, that's and... also well, that's also true. However, we are in a different place. We've got the vaccine. I've got a piece of paper in front of me here uh, with this morning's report from uh, the ONS, in which it says. Uh, that something like in England, an estimated 54.7% of the population have now got antibodies because they've either had COVID or they've had the vaccine. And that is getting very close to the level at which many doctors would say is herd immunity. 
Absolutely. And that's really what the race is on in this country to get. I saw Kwasi Kwarteng, the business minister, out this morning saying we will not be getting rid of our vaccines until the whole country has been vaccinated mm. full marks to him. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And we are well on our way to doing that. And basically, I think the government is moving to a Australian style sort of strategy where we effectively get our situation under control, lock down the borders and make sure that we are uh, as, as immune as you can be from this situation going forward. And that will allow us to have a, a return to economic uh, activity, to social activity, to life, basically, that we can rely on. The difficulty there is for the, uh, for the tourism and aviation sector. Well, that's the point. And I mean, one of the things I suppose that they will be looking at in Downing Street this morning is the front page of the Daily Mail. What are we waiting for? Um, You know, the Daily Mail, which you would not describe as a wildly, uh, you know, strange and unusually kind of socialist newspaper, uh, basically asking for things to be hurried up a little bit. And I think a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people uh, that I speak to have already taken a view um, that we are in a much better place than we were. Uh, And if you've had a vaccine, you can go and meet people. And I think there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of that going on. And uh, as the days unfold before April the 12th, which is still two weeks away, uh, when the pubs open in the gardens, I think people are, particularly with Easter coming up this weekend, more and more people are going to self-relax the rules. And I I can understand why. I also understand why the Daily Mail are making their voice heard. Why do we not take advantage of this situation? Mm. And, And all I'm saying, Mike, is... The reason why is because the Prime Minister has been caught out before and wants to be as sure as he possibly can be. And his view is we are in a good position. That good position should be preserved, not put at risk. And you preserve that by continuing the lockdown perhaps further. In the same way that when you take a course of antibiotics, you're meant to take the entire course. You don't give up when you feel better. You carry on taking the full course so that there's absolute certainty that you've come through the other side. Yeah, but if, his... but, if, but if yeah, but this is the equivalent of not only doing that, but staying off work and not being able to make any money while you're staying the whole course, even though you're fine. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It is that, and that is the seriousness. I was speaking to a business leader yesterday. He was saying to me, why, why are we not getting back to work? Why are we still under these uh, situations where we can't travel, we can't do business meetings, we can't have our staff back in the office. Yeah. We are ready. We are fit. We've, we've got on top of this sort mm. of thing. It's maddening. And business is really suffering. People are making business decisions now, which uh, will come into reality in two or three years' time. That's the way that the business cycle works. Investment decisions are way, way ahead. And there is a frustration. But I have to say the Prime Minister is well aware of that frustration and has made a decision uh, and time will tell if it's the right decision. Yes, but I mean, his decision making has cost a lot of people a lot of money and has cost a lot of businesses their very business and their very livelihood. I was talking to uh, someone in hospitality yesterday who just said that we feel as though we've been literally thrown under a bus because when you do reopen finally on the 12th of April, uh, you'll only be able to service about a third of what you would normally do. So you'll be just about keeping your head above the water but not really making any money. And there's a lot of people who feel that if you can open... Let's just open, you know, and that's what I think people mean by moving it forward, because why do we have to wait until May the 17th before you can actually go inside a restaurant and sit down where it's a lot safer than going to somebody's house? That's right. And a number of of the papers this morning are making that point that it is many, many weeks, months before people will be able to trade properly in a way which is meaningful. And even between now and then, how many businesses will fall over because they just can't quite 
keep it together for that long. Uh, and we've also got the end of furlough coming up in September. Mm. So, you know, it's a really, really horrific situation for many genuine businesses. And when we talk about businesses, Mike, this is some point I want to make. A business is a word, okay? But behind the word are real people who've put their uh, stake on something. They've made a gamble. They've taken a risk. They've put their efforts into something. They've worked tirelessly to make it happen. And people rely on them getting it right as well for their jobs. And everything spins off that. That's how this economy works. Uh, and they do need to be heard and they do need to be respected. And we need to do everything that we can to make sure that they can continue to trade with each other and that the atmosphere, the culture in this country is one of can do, not let's, let's shut down. Mm. Now, I have to say, as I see it, the, the political class have a horrendous job in trying to get that balance right. And of course, they're not always going to get it right. But what do we want? Do we want a third, fourth lockdown? Uh, September, October? No, we do not, because that really would be... Yes, but that's not, that's not an inevitability. That's only an option, because they want it to be an option, you know, because we've had many lockdowns and we've yet had uh, many deaths. And so you might argue that what was the lockdown for? The NHS was never overwhelmed, which is what we were told it was for the first time. The NHS wasn't overwhelmed the next time they did it, but they did it in order to stop the spread of the disease. That didn't happen because then the disease spread even more. So, I mean, you can make a very good and cogent argument for, for lockdown being a waste of time. Yeah, well, uh, or you could also say, say the reason the NHS wasn't overwhelmed was because they took the lockdown decision. Yeah, you could say that. Which, you could, but the, point, but the point is... You'll, now, I think the, the, point, trouble, the trouble is, George, you'll never know the answer to either of those things. <laughs> That's true. I think where you're on very strong ground, Mike, is your point about vaccination. Vaccination, and by the way, treatment, mm. which is also coming uh, down the track, uh, thanks to the pharmaceutical companies who are working away tirelessly in the background on this, the vaccination means that this country will get to herd immunity relatively soon. And that is an amazing achievement. And that is why I think that there is room for ministers to be much more uh, proactive about lifting the lockdown, uh, because that is the situation that it doesn't mean the disease goes away. And it doesn't mean to say that people don't get it, mm. but it does mean that people are unlikely to have to go to hospital for treatment. Well, I was asked a question by somebody yesterday um, about the flu. And when you have proper flu, as opposed to the man flu that we all complain about every single winter, I've had it twice in my life, um, and it wipes you out for a week, sometimes two weeks. You literally can't get out of bed. But what you don't do is then spend the rest of your life worrying about getting it again. You know, it's one of those things I think coronavirus, while I'm not suggesting that it's the same as flu, is 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 a disease which will fall back into that sort of category where people will be, uh, you know, vaccinated against it, therefore not really in any grave danger of, of becoming extremely ill, and it's just something we'll have to get from time to time. It seems to me. Well, we hope that's right, uh, and again, we have to point out that we're dealing with unknown unknowns here because we can't really know what the long term effect of COVID is, and you will know, and I know, and people listening will know of people who've caught COVID this last 12 months and have very long-term serious implications yeah. on the lungs and that sort of thing. And so whilst I hope you're right, we can't know that yet. And of course, that leads to people's anxiety. It does. In, in, in many cases, people are very anxious about a great many things. And I, I worry sometimes that we are catering to those people who are anxious about everything rather than catering to the majority of the people of this country who want to get on with things, knowing that there's a certain risk to everything that we do. Yeah. And there's a lot of people anxious about not getting back to the office. Exactly. And being anxious about having to, you know, people who work for me spending Christmas Day on their own in their 
uh, uh, you know, shared houses uh, because they weren't allowed to go and see their families. These are people I still haven't physically seen mm. uh, for, for some months. And I'm longing to get to, to see them in the office and get together and, and just that they, they need the human interaction as well as 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 all the other issues that we have to deal with today. And that's a really important thing not to overlook. Mm, absolutely right. Speaking of anxiety, how anxious do you think they are in Downing Street about this Jennifer Arcuri business? Because it's getting pretty grubby now. Uh, it's been three days on the front page of the mirror uh, alone and other people are picking it up. But nobody's really doing much with it. And, and as I say, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a grubby story that I don't particularly want to spend a great deal of time on. But there is a problem here for Boris, isn't there? Well, I mean, 20 years ago, when you and I were uh, younger men in Fleet Street around the world, this would have been a dynamite story which would have rocked the government to its knees. But I think uh, in this day and age, number one, people have priced certain uh, knowledge about Boris's private life into their view of him. So it doesn't come as a shock. Number two, it was inevitable that this this individual would come out publicly at some point and Mm. share her story. And number three... I think people are more concerned with the, 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 the real world than what he's gone in his private life. That said, there are a number of potential inquiries which could uh, look into behaviour, uh, particularly when he was London mayor, whether anything, any impropriety was done. I mean, it is interesting that Allegra Stratton, who's the Prime Minister's spokeswoman now, uh, who speaks on the record uh, under her name, is having to defend him and talk about his integrity. And I don't think that will... Uh, please her very much no. but the point is it's not a surprise and news never let us forget is something which is which makes people go wow yes uh, and i don't think many people are going wow about this no story. no in fact quite the reverse well let's talk about the european uh, wow factor because this morning something that made me chuckle rather was this, this idea of uh, uh, boris johnson's macrons and merkel's to cooperate because as i said in my, my opener uh, it was only last week they were sort of more or less rattling sabres at one another well this is the uh, difficulty and the complexity of being a modern leader that at the same time there is this sort of vaccine uh, nationalism uh, going on right now there is also the g7 presidency which britain is the chairman of and that means in this year boris johnson has an opportunity to move the global leadership agenda forward it's a great opportunity for him it's a great opportunity for this country for the world to get its grip on some of the really massive issues that impact uh, the planet right now and it can only be done by the cooperation of the world's most powerful countries and that can only be done by the cooperation of the individuals who are running those countries right now so he has an obligation and he has an opportunity and a responsibility to use his power to pull these guys together to cooperate on the really big ticket items. The things which will fix the economy of the world for the next 50 years, that's what I'm talking about. These are really, really massive items which impact everybody who's listening and everybody who's listening's children and their children because that's how uh, the world sets its way forward. He has to, at the same time, continue to fight on the more narrow issues uh, like vaccination and the way that uh, the EU has really made a horrendous mess uh, of its handling of the vaccination situation and has been meddling with and toying with the idea of trying to restrict our access to legally contracted 
doses of the vaccine, which of course they've had to step back from and give up on. So that's the complexity. You're spinning plates as a prime minister these days. On the one hand, you want to be cooperating with the fellow leaders in the world. On the other hand, in a very narrow way, you have to stand up for your rights as a British prime minister. Yeah. How much do you think there is in, in the stories that suggest he's slowed everything down a little bit here in the UK? Because without Europe kind of moving at the same pace, there's not really um, any benefit to it, if you know what I mean, in terms of both commerce and in terms of opening the economy and also in terms of tourism and travel. I don't, I think that's a conspiracy theory too far, is my view. But I mean, you know, prime ministers have lots of power, but they also don't have lots of power. There's only so much in their gift that they can do. And there's only so much thinking time that a prime minister has. The, the truth of the matter is you have to deal with the immediate that you can deal with right now. Um, there are lots of reasons why supply of uh, medicines and vaccines doesn't come swimmingly. There are lots of raw ingredients and base materials that go into uh, the production of a vaccine. And they're, they're global supply chains. They come from all parts of the world. Uh, and the supply of those can be much better at certain times of the year for different reasons. So there are squillion uh, reasons why there's delay. And it's almost certain that it's not a conscious decision by a prime minister to deliberately slow mm. things down. As, know, as, as far as the roadmap is concerned, I think as long as he continues to stick to the planned dates and he does open up as he said he would uh, on the dates that he says, I think Boris will be fine and he'll get through this. But if there's any deviation from those dates and if there's anything that doesn't happen as a result of a decision he makes on the basis of witty and, and Valance's, you know, dire modelling warnings, I think he's in trouble. Well, I, it, it'll be interesting to see, because there's another point here, Mike, that I haven't made in this conversation, which is an important point. And you ask yourself, why is the Prime Minister not listening to the Daily Mail in the way that you would expect? And the answer is because if you look at the polling numbers, the Prime Minister is doing exceptionally well. The Conservative Party are doing really well. The Labour Party are unable to get a foothold. Uh, you would expect the opposition right now to be way ahead in the polls. But they're not. They can't get anywhere near the prime minister. Mm. And if you were the prime minister and your uh, motivation, obviously, number one is fixing the problem. But politically, your own survival is at stake. You're going to do what you think is the thing which that, that resonates best with the public. And from what he can see, the polling, both privately, I've seen some of it, and publicly, is telling them quite clearly that they're doing OK. Mm. Um, and the British public may not be uh, uh, where you think that they might be in this situation. That's certainly what the polling is. Mm. Yes, no, that is one uh, incredible statistic, which which is entirely, as you say, um, unexpected, I would think. But, but you know, maybe it's more about the Labour Party being so useless as opposed to the Tory party being brilliant. But we shall see. George, good to talk to you again. Thank you very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, Chairman of Portland Communications, former political editor, of course, of The Sun. We want to take your temperatures on this today because we need to know uh, what you're thinking. Because... So many people now, including the Daily Mail, asking this question. What are we waiting for? Infections lows for six months. Not a single COVID death in half of country on Sunday. 40 MPs demanding the return of foreign breaks. Uh, and with seven weeks until Britain truly unlocks. Why? 
is the question. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk now, though, about something that's been doing the rounds effectively over the course of the last few days in the newspapers here in the UK. Because what we've seen uh, in the UK is a sort of um, surge in claims of sexual abuse by pupils at state schools. Uh, We're told it's also a problem uh, in private schools, even though the figures are not really available for that. But there's definitely a sense out there that there is a kind of toxic masculinity going on uh, and that somehow men are all to blame for something which they shouldn't be doing. And all men are to blame for the behaviour of all other men. Down in Australia, there's been an extraordinary story um, where a school made all the boys in that school stand up and basically apologise to all the girls in that school uh, in an assembly for what they called rapes committed by their gender which seems to me to be an extraordinary development. Let's talk to Danielle Shepherd, who's a parent at Brower College uh, in Warmambool, Australia. Um, Danielle, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. How are you going? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, we've got um, some of this kind of stuff going on in the UK, but we've never quite seen it reach proportions like this. Tell us what happened. Uh, So uh, my son told me that he was asked to stand up after the entire assembly watched a video um, on uh, consent, sexual consent and Mm. and consent within schools. Um, He, not just himself, but all of the boys uh, were asked to stand up in solidarity to apologise on behalf of their gender for anything that had happened to the female gender, uh, which is not right. No. Honestly. No, it really isn't right. And, and I mean, were they given any warning that this was going to be something they were going to be asked to do? No. So the, the students had no idea. Um, as far as I've heard, the teachers had no idea. Uh, it was all just thrown together at the last second and everyone was put on the spot. And they were being asked to apologise for rapes committed by their gender. Was that just in general or was it at the school or was it in your town? I mean, what were they apologising for? Uh, and that, that, that's the, the, the great question, isn't it? Uh, they, the students were unsure what they were apologising for. Mm. Um, it was apparently for sexual abuse or putting, um, not, not following with consent um, for students in, in the school but it should not be put on to a bunch of 12-year-old, 12 to 18-year-old boys that have never done anything like that. Well, we were talking about this earlier on uh, with Julie Hartley Brewer on Breakfast and how, you know, boys are now being kind of put upon by lots of other people in society as if everything is their fault. I mean, I've got two teenage sons myself and I find it quite remarkable that, uh, that they're being looked at as if they're sort of sexual predators at such yes, a young age. That's, that's what my son's concern is. He turned around and said to me, and now I'm concerned that people are looking at me as if I'm a predator or going to be a predator as I grow. Um, and now he's worried that people are, are looking at him like that, and, and he's not. Mm. Um, yeah, a lot of the other students, it's all been um, on the, the news down here, uh, most of the, the male students that have been on the TV, on the news, have, have, have vocalised the same concern. Yeah. And what's the kind of general 
attitude in, in Australia to all of this? Because, you know, we're living in this kind of woke world now where, you know, we have to be very careful not to offend anyone, where we all have to somehow take account of people um, that we don't know, taking offence at something we say before we've even said it. It's almost like you're apologising all the time for something that you don't even know has happened yet. Yes, that's that's true. That's that's the world today, I think. But down here where we are angry, everyone in, well, a lot of people in Australia are angry. Um, a lot of people in Warrnambool, the parents at the school are ropeable. Um, even the parents of, of the daughters and, and the females at the school were uh, ropeable. Uh, this day and age, there's not, two genders, there are many genders, mm. and you've singled out one gender to stand up and apologise to all of them, whether they were female, you you asked one gender to stand. Now, from my understanding, if there were any students in the school that were transgender, how were they feeling? How did they feel to be asked to pick a side, mm. whether they wanted to stand with the boys and apologise, or yeah. sit with the girls and be apologised to? Um, it's not a great thing to have to be put through. No. And have you, as parents, uh, t- uh, sort of gone to the school to ask them what the hell they thought they were doing? I have not had a chance to do that. I have been that inundated since the uh, day I found out. I put a post on Facebook on Brower's page, mm. uh basically stating that I was not impressed that my son was asked to apologise for something he had never done. Mm. And since then I've been inundated with um, messages for interviews and, and stuff like that. Mm. I um, The school has sent out a mass message apologising in general for what they have done. They have also given the whole school extra time for lunch, I believe, one day right. to try and apologise. But, um, you know, what, what's an extra 15 minutes when you may have psychologically damaged yeah. many st- Well, it is an extraordinary story. Danielle, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Danielle Shepherd, their parent at, at Brow College in Warrnambool, Australia, where basically the school have now apologised for making everybody else apologise. Brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely bonkers mad, crazy world that we now live in. But we- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now let's talk to Dr. Rakib Hassan uh, because he's a man that knows a thing or two uh, about racial politics in this country and the way uh, that different minority groups try to influence public policy. Rakib, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I know you've written uh, already about this story. You've spoken about it as well. It's quite a remarkable state of affairs that it's still actually going on and it doesn't seem any nearer being resolved, does it, up in Batley? Well, Mike, I made the point that these uh, intimidating gatherings outside uh, state school were com- completely unacceptable. I think when it comes to disputes, misunderstandings, they can be resolved through a constructive multi-agency dialogue. But the scenes we've seen outside the school, in my view, have been deeply unhelpful from a social cohesion perspective. We've had uh, we've had religious leaders outside the school almost giving the appearance that they're dictating terms mm. to a state school. Right. And we've also had a local charity up there comparing the teachers' actions of showing the cartoons in question with acts of terrorism, which I think is deeply insensitive in a country which has suffered atrocities such as the 7-7 uh, London bombings and the Manchester Arena bombings. So I really think that we, we, we just need more people to adopt a more level-headed mindset when Mm. approaching these kind of issues exactly right and the people who are demonstrating i mean first of all i know this is not an area that 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 you or i are experts in but first of all my my question is how is it possible for them to have a demonstration in this day and age of of covid when it's supposed to be um against the law to have any kind of mass gathering they seem to be getting away with it police don't seem to be anywhere near it um but also the people who are taking part in this demo many of them have got nothing to do with the school Mm. they don't have children there they're a sort of activists if you like and they're not really representative are they uh, of the broader muslim community well mike uh, we've discussed this uh, before i do feel there have been discrepancies or rather inconsistencies when it comes to the policing of protests during the covid 19 pandemic mm. i think that 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 i think that's almost establishing itself as a mainstream view yeah actually when it comes to uh, the place of British Muslims more broadly in British liberal democracy. I do question whether the individuals uh, outside that school who have participated in intimidating gatherings, whether they are truly representative. Now, if I'd, um, for example, I uh, a piece for Spike today uh, came out, which I made the point that three in four British Muslims feel that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim, Mike. Mm. I tell people that and they're surprised by it, perhaps because the the kind of media that they come across. And the main reason that was cited for that 
was freedom of religion. Yeah. And you see on a number of other indicators that British Muslims, by and large, they feel that they're treated fairly by a range of uh, public institutions, including the National Health Service. And they're generally satisfied with the way British democracy works. And crucially, Mike, there are instances where their trust in institutions is even stronger than the white British mainstream. Mm. So when I notify people of that, they're shocked by it, largely because you have the kind of people they're demonstrating outside the state school, which, are, which is receiving a great deal of media attention. And unfortunately, people see that and they feel this is how Muslim people are in the UK mm. broadly, which is simply not the case. No, exactly right. Because, of course, now the terrible situation has occurred where the teacher in question says that he is in fear for his life. Because, of course, we saw what happened in France terrible mm. situation there where the wrong guy was actually beheaded he hadn't even done anything uh, but he was mistakenly identified as having um you know transgressed some unwritten law um and he was killed mike I, if, if you could um give me the time i just wanted to read a few statements which were made by the muslim neighbor yeah. of the of the batley teacher mm. where he said that we are muslims that eid they would give us eid mubarak cards and even give us sweets, halal sweets, for our children. Mm. A really nice family. He pro And in speaking about the teacher, he probably wasn't aware that the cartoon could be offensive. Now, I think we really, we should not be in the business of overlooking what is an important and positive character assessment of the teacher by his Muslim neighbour. That mm. surely counts for something when we're discussing this particular situation. No, definitely, because I think to, to, to conflate it with Islamophobia, that terrible word mm. that, that gets trotted out from time to time, uh, is entirely wrong. I, I don't agree, though, that he didn't know that it was probably offensive. I think that was part of what he was what he was doing. I mean, without having sat in the classroom, I don't know precisely what the context was, but my understanding from what the, the children have said is that he, he, he warned the class that he was going to do this. He knew that it was offensive to some people. But if you were going to take offence, you didn't have to stay in the class. You could go out. He also wanted to ask the question um, whether it's so offensive that it causes somebody to be killed and whether that is something worth debating. And I think in any use, uh, you know, useful conversation about religion and about fanaticism and about terrorism, it's something that, that school teachers should be allowed to talk about. Mike, I, I couldn't agree more. I'd say that in terms of questioning religious ideology or rather questioning the social implications of orthodox religious doctrines, that's firmly embedded in British culture. Mm. That has been the case for a long, long time. So there has to be an understanding that Britain is ultimately a Western liberal democracy where there are no blasphemy laws. The remaining blasphemy laws, which fell into disuse, they were, they were removed back in 2008. Mm. So there needs to be a degree of understanding um, within certain elements of particular communities about what are the general liberal democratic norms in British society. Mm. Yes, that's right. And I think if you're going to have schools like Batley Grammar School, where you're going to have a mixed uh, community going there, it's not a religious-based school. It's going to have mm. religious studies, as as indeed do, do most schools. Though some schools call it, you know, world studies. They don't call it religious studies anymore. But, you know, it's a, it's a good way of educating children about different religions of the world. But what it shouldn't be uh, is some kind of box out of which you cannot wander in case you upset someone. Well, I think that schools, they should be in the business of generating intellectually stimulating conversations, even over subjects which are considered to be controversial and challenging. Mike, I think that I think that's an important function of British schooling more generally. 
really make this point though about Batley Grammar School. It is a state school. Yes. It is not an Islamic institution. It is funded by taxpayers of all religions and none. Mm. So I think that really needs to be understood when we're approaching this particular issue. And what I'm fearful of, Mike, is that you see those scenes outside Batley Grammar School. If truth be told, it's an absolute gift for anti-Muslim organisations. It really is. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because it actually creates people uh, who feel as though there's something wrong with a multicultural situation because Mm. they they see intolerance and they see people making threats about somebody's life and actively encouraging somebody to do this guy harm. And they go, well, these people are not the sort of people we want in this country. Well, I think it ultimately it speaks to where decision making power and influence lies. And if there is a perception that elements of the British Muslim population are dictating terms Mm. in terms of how public institutions should conduct themselves, then there is going to be a cultural backlash to that. And that will be deeply unhelpful from a broader social cohesion perspective. Yes, exactly. And I presume um, you, you can't look, look into a crystal ball and see how this ends, but at some point or other, um, the council is going to have to address it, the school is going to have to address it. I mean, many, many people think the headmaster of the school was wrong to apologise straight away and suspend the teacher as, as, as if that was his first kind of you know reaction to it. Um, but I can't really see a way through for this young teacher who's in his 20s, I understand, um, to ever go back and work there. I don't think so. I think it's very clear that he's uh, very insecure over his uh, personal safety and his family's safety as well. Mm. I think you make a very important point about the headmaster, actually, who I feel threw the teacher on the through thrown under the bus, yeah. the teacher by his headmaster, yeah. by his boss, if truth be told. According to the teacher's father, the, the, these materials, they were, they were collectively, collectively agreed upon and put into the, uh, put into the curriculum. So the headmaster should take a little bit more responsibility. I felt that his reaction was, I'm going to take a little bit of the heat off myself. Yeah, I think he kind of panicked, I think, I, I think so. And I think that, as I said, that, that what the situation needed, it needed a calm response. What I feel, there have been rash, reckless and disproportionate reactions to, to what happened at uh, Batley Grammar. And I think that's most unfortunate. And as I said, I think that in terms of broader community relations, some of the scenes that have not been helpful at all. Mm. I mean, can you see this possibly as a, uh, as a bridging point maybe for um, the calming of, of, of these kinds of disputes? And perhaps maybe it's an opportunity um, for people to get sensible sit around a table and actually mm. work something out because clearly I know that you might say that some of these people demonstrating are not the type of people who would very much sit around a table with anyone um, but you know somebody needs to solve this I think so I think there's no harm in, for example in strengthening school guardian relationships uh, more more broadly but I, 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 what I really uh, like to point out is that there have been a number, a growing number of British Muslim voices who have been very critical mm. of the gatherings outside Batley Grammar School. And that includes religious leaders who who've said that, you know, when it comes to more local disputes, that there shouldn't be any kind of outside external interference. There are reports that uh, in these gatherings, we had individuals coming from Le- Leeds and Rochdale. Mm. 
in, in, into Batley. So I think I think it is important to recognise that there have been members of the British Muslim population who who have condemned the protests and that they're not supportive of these kind of intimidate intimidate intimidating gatherings outside the state school where teachers and pupils may feel insecure. Mm. Well, exactly. I mean, if if it's not an illegal gathering, which I would say, generally speaking, I think it is, um, surely some of the threats being uttered and some of the things being said are breaches of public order, aren't they? Well, I'd make the point that people really should be careful about the statements they make over these sensitive issues. I made the point that there was a local local registered charity, Mike. Mm. Who, who compared? Who, who sought to strike parallels between the teachers' actions with acts of terrorism? Mm. So uh, I, I think, the, I think one those of the kind charities, of comments are inflammatory. One of the one of the charities also identified him, I think, didn't they? Yeah, but it was, it was that very same statement where the charity actually identified the teacher in question, mm. which I felt was hugely irresponsible after what happened to Samuel Patti. Mm. Um, in Paris. So I really think that a local registered charity, they they should behave in a more socially responsible manner. I don't think we're asking for Mm. too much there. No, quite. And interestingly, it's been played out in this week of all weeks when um, something that you've been saying for a very long time has kind of come to pass. You've always said that you cannot possibly lump all independent sort of, uh, you know, immigrant communities or different religious Mm. communities together uh, as if they are one sort of homogenous group, for example, uh, being being defined as, as a black and, and minority ethnic. Um, it now appears that that word or that acronym has been urged to uh, be sort of struck from the language, if you like. Well, I, th- I, think, I think it'd be a fantastic development, Mike. We've talked about this uh, many times mm. before, the BAME acronym, which uh, crudely lumps together different ethnic groups which differ a great deal in terms of social integration, cultural attitudes, socioeconomic status, political behaviour. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting that when we talk about British Muslims more generally, that the British Muslim population in itself is ethnically diverse, but it's also politically diverse. So when it comes to issues such as freedom of religion, but also freedom of expression, freedom of speech, how public institutions should uh, sh- should conduct themselves internally, how they engage with communities, British Muslims are far from being a monolithic, single-voice bloc. So I really think that it's good that we're moving these conversations on race, culture and community uh, into territory where it's being recognised that we we need greater disaggregation and we need to recognise the degree of diversity, mm. uh, the diversity of opinion within particular communities, because all too often that is lost and there is a degree of homogenising entire groups, which yes. I don't think is helpful for the broader debate. No, and I think it's indicative as well, Rakib, of the way that our society has kind of found itself floundering around, trying to be woke and trying to kind of be inclusive. Mm. And in fact doing the exact opposite. I mean, we were talking just before the news there to a woman in Australia about this ludicrous situation where boys in a school in Australia were told to stand up at assembly and apologise um, for the sort of uh, uh, the, the various sexual assaults that have taken place on, on women, not in the school, but just in general. You know, so by making uh, the boys apologise, sort of demonising them effectively and saying that all men are responsible for all men, you know, that's mm. a really bad place to get. Now the schools had to apologise for making them apologise, you know. And here we've got this kind of, you know, this, this acronym, which we were told was something that we should use because that was a respectful way to, to refer to people. But we're now being told, actually, that's a mistake. 
Well, it, it, it was grave error that the acronym was used as much as it was, mm. if truth be told. And I think it, more generally, when we discuss matters of culture, there should be a greater emphasis on personal responsibility, individual responsibility. Mm. And, and I think what's also pro problematic is the term British Muslim community. Yeah, I've, I've seen MPs in the past talk about the government's counter-terrorism uh, program, uh, PREVENT. Mm where people say, oh, the, the PREVENT has alienated the British Muslim community. Mm. A recent survey showed, Mike, that 56% of British Muslims haven't even heard of PREVENT. <laughs> well, that's, so, the, that's the reality of life, I'm not, I'm not sure how you can be alienated by something that you've never heard of. Right. Um, but again, so this, is, really this, is, is, again yeah. this is people, Rakeem, speaking for other people, assuming other people's attitudes and assuming, uh, like we often hear uh, in other areas, um, assuming other people are taking offence at something that they haven't heard. I, th I think that's one of the biggest flaws of British state multiculturalism. Mm. You have this model where um, central government, uh, historically, they've sought to engage with entire communities through self-appointed community leaders. Mm. who are not in a position of accountability and they're not, they're not democratically elected either. And I think in the, in the long term, that's been deeply unhelpful. And I don't think it's, it's served those communities well at all. No, I don't think it has. So, I mean, going forward, I suppose, um, with this particular dispute up in, uh, uh, in, in Batley, I mean, who's going to sort yeah. it? Who is going to sort it? Well, I'd like to think that, you know, various actors in, in, in Batley, whether it's the local council, the school, uh, teachers, parents, people who have a stake in the local community. That's why I was particularly frustrated with the news that outsiders from, uh, you know, out, outside of town were coming in and being disruptive outside mm. the school. Right. I, was, I, I, I thought that was unacceptable. So I would really like to think that we have a teacher who is, who, who is deeply insecure over his safety, fears for his life. What I really want to see is constructive dialogue between various members of the local community there. Irrespective, you know, local community, I mean, people of different faiths, uh, different ethnic backgrounds, people operating in different organisations, mm -hmm. that they can actually be patient, try to understand uh, different points of view and come to some kind of arrangement which is beneficial for the entire um, town of Batley. Yes, I think that would be good. Dr. Rakiba San, as ever, thank you very much indeed. Uh, independent expert, of course, in British public attitudes, talking there uh, about the problem, not only uh, with what's going on at Batley Grammar School, which needs to be sorted sooner rather than later, but also just generally uh, in the way that people have spoken about, in the way that people are lumped together in groups, in the way that attitudes to certain different communities in this country uh, aren't really particularly good. And that is a problem, isn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, go straight to Angela Levin, our favourite royal biographer, uh, on this happy day, the Megxit anniversary. Angela, a very, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you. Now, I don't know. I have mixed feelings, I suppose, today, because on the one hand, I'm quite glad that they got rid of their titles, the HRHs, but I rather would like to see them also not using Duke and Duchess of anything as well. But I'm also rather happy that they've left the country, I must say. Yes, I think they've got to be a bit of pain in the neck, really, this constant <laughs> stumbling when uh, we were then, a year ago, hit by the pandemic. Mm. And it was terrifying. We've got used to it now. We stay at home. You might want to fight in, as you said, it around pubs. But on the whole, people accept what it is. But then it was terrifying for us. Suddenly, people you love were dying. You yep. couldn't go out, couldn't go to work. And here they were moaning and groaning. Um, 
The Queen handled it with aplomb, of course, as one would expect. Mm. And though they put up on their Instagram account that um, they were stepping back and they didn't want to, um, uh, they didn't want to be members of the royal family, but they would like to occasionally pop in and and carry on with the their, their patriotism, the, the the charities they yeah. support. Um, and the Queen said, well, you can't do this, but let me give you a year. It was very grandmotherly Queen. It was extraordinary that she would allow them to use their titles, but not HRH, mm. uh, for a year. They always had the right to come back straight away if they wanted to. They were much loved. And although she'd been quite insulted, in my view, she behaved with her normal dignity. Mm. So here we have them both in a grand house with 16 bathrooms um, and loads, apparently, uh, an avalanche of work to be done. Uh, they've got Netflix, they've got Spotify, mm. they've got books to write, they've got these two huge jobs that Harry's got that he seems to be going to rake in millions. Um, Megan seems to be uh, moving towards a political career. And so you'd think in their terms, they were very happy, very successful. And on a personal level, they had little Archie, who's nearly two, yeah. and another baby on the way. So why grumble? But they're still grousing. <laughs> what they wanted was their freedom, was the ability to earn their own money and privacy. Well, they've ditched two and mm. they've managed one, but they're still complaining that Prince Charles isn't giving Harry any money age 36. Right, That's so Harry. It's incredible, yeah. isn't it? And yet, um, Charles, as far as we know, was still providing money for his security detail, my understanding was. And also, uh, I believe that uh, last year, Charles gave him about four million quid. But he's also got 30 million anyway from his mother's uh, trust, hasn't he? Yes, that's 30 million from Diana as a result of right. the divorce and also includes money from Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who left Harry and Meghan... Harry and Meghan, William and Harry, some money when she died. And right. um, who's got more than half? Because William will inherit all sorts of things when he steps up, when Prince Charles uh, inevitably at some point becomes king. And, yes. And William, yeah, he will inherit more money. So all of that has been trying to look after Harry so he doesn't feel the spare as to, to the to the heir. Mm. He's got independence, they love him, what he does is important. And indeed he was doing great important things. I was working with him or well, with him for uh, over a year and he was brilliant with people. He had a magic quality inherited from his mother where he could help people feel that their life was worth living. Mm. But he used ordinary language and he cracked jokes. Now I don't understand what on earth he's saying. I don't understand his titles. Mm. I don't understand all this dissemination of information. I mean, it is so pompous. It is so... Well, this, I mean, this outfit that he's gone to work for as chief impact officer, I mean, I've never seen anything so ridiculous in my life, you know, where these people go around talking to people in companies and helping them, you know, to communicate with each other. And you just go, what are you talking about, man? What is going on? Yeah. yeah. Um, the interesting thing to me is that people have to pay a monthly contribution of £365. Now, what he was really good at was helping the underdog, mm. helping children who had been abused, teenagers had been thrown out of schools and, and pubs and everywhere. Mm. Um 
uh, ex-army people who had been damaged psychologically or physically, also with mm. no money. How on earth is anybody who's not rich going to be able to afford 365 and pounds a month? Mm. But also, Harry is terrific at the quick reaction. He would talk to somebody for no more than five minutes, make them feel wonderful, change what they felt about yes. life. It's not continuous. We don't know yet how many hours he's going to have to work, but this is a proper job. He'll have to get up in the morning right. early doesn't like you have to work all the way through and 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 you know well they accept there are times that he can go and have a yoga lesson in between and he's a punch bag if he's angry so you know all things are covered but it just seems to me such a phony thing well it is isn't it because we all know we all know why they've hired him they haven't i mean as somebody pointed out to me um what on earth is he doing uh, representing an organization which helps people with their mental health when he's clearly not qualified to do that, uh, not least by uh, admitting that when Megan said that she was suffering from mental health problems, he didn't seem to do anything about it. Well, he said he couldn't trust anyone he didn't know who to turn to, which mm. I, is very one of those things they said that was is very, very hard to believe because he could have gone to the person who helped him. Yes. He could have gone to any of the doctors who hover around. There's lists of doctors that the royals can get hold of, yeah. you know, and of course, they're all going to be discreet, aren't they? Pardon? They're all going to be discreet. It's not as if they're going to you know, sell their stories to the Sunday papers. But Megan could have gone to her own um, gynecologist and said, I feel depressed. They ask you. Yeah. I've had three children. They ask you, how are you managing? Yes. Mentally, physically, mm. you know, every other way. Mm. So it, it, it puts him in a very bad light to do this. Nor did he have to have uh, a proper interview. The job was worked round him, yeah, which sounds very um, unappealing. Well, they, they just want his name on the door. That's all yeah. they want, isn't it? They don't really care it's whether he does a stroke of work or not. It's fantastic publicity. You think I've never heard of this company before. Now yeah. we all know about it. Right. We know what it is. And doing. people will hire them on the basis that they might get to chat to, you know, somebody from the British royal family. Yes. But meanwhile, the royal family back here in London are thinking, um, is he abusing his title? Mm. The Queen is very, very determined that senior members of the royal family, not junior ones, but senior members of the royal family, must not use their title to um, make money yes. out of it. Right. And, and that's exactly what they're doing. Mm. Um, well, because they can't uh, really do anything else, I suppose. But a couple of things that have come up, um, and one today from... Um, uh, from Tina, who says this, um, has Harry got himself a green card so that he can work in America? Now, that's quite an interesting question because, I mean, having worked there myself, there are different visas that you can get. There are He's entitled to a green card uh, because he's now married to, to Megan. He's entitled, I think, after five years of residence, if he wants to become a citizen. But will he need to get a green card, do you think? No, he doesn't. He's already got the OK. He's got an OK which is reserved for people with unique, incredibly special talent. Oh, yeah. And um, that's what you... It's done for a couple of pop stars before him. Mm. And now he can easily go into that and not worry about a green card because he's a senior member of the royal family. So, bang, that is immediately... Mm the royals to make money because otherwise he wouldn't have got the right. job but will he not also have to pay tax on the money that he gets from this company i think he's got an excuse for that as well that's for the nice. moment. 
That's great. Yeah, exactly. What a great life. You know, Annoying. I mean, the rest of us, I went, you know, I went to America when I was 23, uh, literally with $100 in my pocket, which I spent the first two days I was there. Got myself a job, got myself a social security number, paid tax, formed a company, made a lot of money, bought a house, you know, all before I was 36, believe it or not. Yeah, well, um, I think most of us have got that get up and go. Yeah. Because you want to, you're excited about being grown up and in the world. But Harry hasn't had to do that. It's been quite the reverse. Mm, mm. But I, I don't mind Megan encouraging to work hard. That's jolly good. But I think that um, not having to pay tax initially, not having to work or convince people of your value and with getting a green card, not having to go through an interview, this is really royal privilege. Yes. They keep saying they don't want to be Ross and they're not Ross, but they're absolutely using every opportunity to take advantage of royal privilege. Mm. I wouldn't mind if they admitted it, but instead of which they're moaning and groaning about their lives. Yes. And they're also kind of painting this picture of these kind, compassionate people, you know, who yeah. only want to help people. And that's absolutely couldn't be. I mean, look at what's happened since since they've since they've done that interview. Sharon Osbourne's lost her job. And I'm sure people won't be crying into their, their tea about that because she's got plenty of money and that's fine. But, you know, she's no longer working on that TV show in America. Piers Morgan is out of a job. Um, I don't know what you made of his piece on uh, on Sunday. And I'll be interested to know whether know. Megan had somebody read it to her, given that she doesn't she says she doesn't read newspapers. But I bet she read that. Yeah, she's got a team of 12 who would read it all for her um, and Harry. But the point of that is it doesn't matter whether the people who've lost their jobs are rich or not. It's the appalling thought that if Megan says something about somebody's job mm. um, or as feels that she's been criticised, that person is immediately taken out of their job. Yeah. No more questions asked. There's no balance. Yeah. Just, and I think since uh, you and I spoke I last, since, since you and I mm -hmm. spoke last, Andrew, another one's bitten the dust. Haven't they lost another kind of high profile um, woman that was working yes. for them? Yes, a very senior woman who had a, an amazing job in, in, in America um, actually uh, left very quickly from them. And she said quite tactfully that she was asked to do a lot of things that weren't in her contract to do. Yes. Now, I don't to take that she didn't mind making someone a cup of tea i think <laughs> take that that she was overworked she was shouted at mm. and she was treated like a servant rather than being a mm. senior member of staff um and this is just yet another one as you say they they can't keep people and i think this is i mean, harry used to be very friendly with journalists you should go and have a drink with them in the pub if yeah. they've been on engagement together. But he's got very superior lately. Um, and Megan, because she hasn't had the experience of growing up in the royal family or even a very rich or uh, aristocratic family, um, she, she feels that she has to be super superior and, and, and is actually very rude and demanding. Mm. Um, and not very pleasant. I mean, we discovered quite recently when they were in Australia that she decided to, she wanted to take various people banana cake. And she, in the middle of the night, she contacted uh, the staff and said they had to go out and find the ingredients and make this banana mm. cake. And they made it and it was no good. So they had to make another one and another one until it was all right. Yeah. And then she told the people she was giving it to that she'd been up all night doing it. You know, Amazing. she, it just, it's not woman. the way <laughs> it's really not. What's the latest from 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 your perspective, Angela, on on the bullying um, investigation at uh, Kensington Palace? What's what's happening there, if anything? 
Well, I, I don't know what's happening. I mean, they've wanted to keep it very, very quiet. Mm. And I think that that's um, what they've done. And I think quite right, too. It's very difficult to trust Harry or Meghan because it seems that if they tell the men a thing, they're going to pass it through to get make sure it gets up on social media. Mm. Um, you know, when, when um, Prince Charles and Prince William rang Harry and spoke to him, this is the initial thing, the start of making peace with the, within the family. Um, two days later, it was in the press that the conversation was, you know, didn't go anywhere. Well, exactly. But also imagine how William now feels about that because he obviously decided to reach out to his brother um, to have a conversation with him, which might have been quite a difficult decision for him to make. And having done it, he then gets uh, he gets it all leaked to CBS this morning, thanks to her. Yes. They called it unproductive. And yeah. I think that word might boomerang back into them because a lot of people who don't know whether it's true or not about a lot of the things they said will all know about a row in a family mm. we all fall out with certain members of the family big or small at some point and you then make peace but you don't go around telling everybody what it was and this is they always think globally this is telling the world yeah. globally that it was unproductive. Mm. And so I don't think, I think they'll be very, very careful not to leak anything. And I'm very pleased lawyers are investigating the bullying, bullying yeah. because you know, never know who could slip up and say something. Mm. And, um, Do you think I'm, that this whole episode with Oprah was kind of designed for what has now happened with Harry? So that this was his kind of stamping of his authority and identity, if you like, on America. He's now been hired, we're told, for a seven-figure sum from this um, self-help organisation. He's also working um, with James Murdoch's wife in this, uh, you know, fake news foundation in uh, in Colorado. Do you think that's job done now for them? So they're now saying, well, look, now we've got some income coming in. We can sort of take a bit of a back seat. No, I actually think that Meghan is not someone who's likely to be satisfied. She's so ambitious, which is very good, but she's so resentful if mm. anybody does anything um, different or better than her or attracts more attention. Mm. I think she was working, well, I know that she was working with Oprah Winfrey for two years to get this interview. Yeah. And I think we saw that Harry came along as an appendage two thirds of the way through. Mm who was very, looked very, very uncomfortable, didn't want to speak about this and that. Um, he just had to go along with it because, as he said before, they got married, what Meghan wants, Meghan gets. That certainly seems to be true. What about this other remarkable story this week? And it's been around for a while now, but the, 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 sort of the, the background to the whole Martin Bashir interview, which, which you and I will remember well. Not everybody does, but it was a massive event at the time, even bigger, really, in a way than, than anything that, that Harry and Meghan have done. But Tiggy Leg Burke seems to have been uh, the focus of much of the ire that, that Princess Diana felt. She seemed to think that uh, uh, that basically Charles was having an affair with her. Some conversations went that uh, that Bashir told her that she'd had an abortion. I mean, it's quite remarkable what's coming out about this. Yes, it, it is remarkable. I think the worst thing is what was revealed today, that there were fake um, uh, invoices mm. that proved that she'd had an abortion, right. or allegedly supposed to prove. And that's what um, Martin Bashir put forward and showed her. And I think we have to take ourselves back to the mood that Diana was in. She was desperate. She'd lost everything, mm. really. And the only thing that really kept her going were her children. And if she thought that Tiggy would take them away from her, because she was a marvellous nanny. She was a grown-up nanny for 
teenage boys. Yeah. She was 26, loved boys' sport, um, very cuddly, good fun, like pillow fights, mm. you know, all the things that young boys would like. And when they split up, Charles wisely took her on. She was also came from a good background. Um, and so she was in competition and Diana wrote her a long list about what she couldn't do, like be photographed with them mm. or be in the bathroom when they're there. You know, she was desperate to hold on to the love of her children. And I think I just feel great pity for her because that was the last thing she could lose. Um, uh, she couldn't she couldn't bear to do that mm. when you add that to the fact that all these fake documents said that the queen was going to um, stand down and prince charles was going to take over as king but he wanted to get rid of her and camilla um and so that he could marry tiggy because she was more suitable mm. and um i mean that is terribly worrying for a young woman who is not mentally stable right. and lack enormous confidence. And I think... It's it, quite a cruel it, thing to do, really, isn't it? It's terribly cruel. And actually, it's changed history. I, well, I, was, I don't like looking back and saying if only, but certain things wouldn't necessarily have happened mm. if those um, false pieces of paper hadn't been shown to her. And I think that's really, really sad. Yes. For the boys... It is, absolutely. And and we've seen Charles um, talking about the possibility of having a kind of transition period um, before he is to take over, because, of course, it's been an interesting year for all sorts of reasons. You know, um, William has celebrated his 10th wedding anniversary with Kate and he's emerged as a kind of very much a solemn but but interesting and, and, and quite in, engaging figure, I suppose, more so than you ever thought he would. And Charles is now talking, I suppose, actively about inheriting the throne. Yes, but he does respect his mother enormously. Mm. Uh, he won't talk much while she's still around. I suspect he's got lots of plans. He is a forward thinker. He was thinking way ahead of us about climate change and plastic and organic food way back in the 70s. So he is he's a forward thinker. But you don't start telling A, your mother, and B, a 94-year-old queen how she's got to... Um, become more modern. I think you wait patiently. It's been a long wait, mm. but he's done a lot of good work, especially for young people. But coming back to what you said about this is the year, I mean, what is interesting is if the Queen advises Parliament to take away their titles, that they can't actually use their titles at all. They can't use um, Duke and Duchess. And, well, they shouldn't or, really, should they? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. If you're so rude about this country and you're so rude about your family mm. in public, and I don't think you should take any advantage of it. And this is obviously a very good way of earning lots of money and um, giving the companies lots of publicity. Yes. And of course, they claim um, that they don't care about titles and yet they still keep them. Yeah. Uh, and they complain that uh, little Archie wasn't given one, even though constitutionally he's not supposed to be given one, but he would get one, um, you know, perhaps later in life. And there's so much nonsense talked by them. Yeah, I think Meghan was over trying to be the victim. Yeah. Because it it sort of, it didn't make any sort of sense. And she said that she didn't care about titles. They wanted to be free. But that's not the point, is it? She's just, she she just... 
She has never understood the British monarchy, no. largely in respect because she never wanted to. And now she's trying to take every little bit of what she had when she was in this country um, to use to uh, move on and step up and do, you know, become president or I'd be. I mean, I mean, America's in a bad enough state without putting her into politics, I feel, <laughs> you know. I think she hasn't got any emotional um, understanding and she has a different rule for her than she does for the rest of the population. Yeah. Also, I, I wouldn't recommend that she goes into politics if she's got such, such thin skin. She doesn't take, yeah. doesn't seem to take, uh, you know, criticism very well, does she? No. I think they say that if she does go into politics, that she will get far more criticism and her background and all the things she's done in mm. her life be looked at under a, a, a magnifying glass far more than she had as a royal. I mean, I wouldn't know whether that's true because I've never been a politician or tried to. Well, I mean, but, I think she certainly won't get away with just saying whatever she thinks and making out that that's what happened because people yes, might actually go and figure out whether it did. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mm. It'll be investigations non-stop and she will blame everybody else but herself for it. Yes. Um, no, I'm a great believer in the public. I think overall we're quite sound. Yes. And people. And I think that they will see through her. She's got lots of qualities, but unfortunately she's got this real bitterness inside. Mm. Don't know where it comes from or why, but that's what she's got. And yeah. this, I must be a victim, so I've got everybody um, doing what I want. Yes, absolutely right. Well, great to talk to you as ever, Angela. Thank you very much indeed. Angela Levin, Royal Biographer, on the anniversary, uh, such as it is, of Megxit, uh, which is actually officially tomorrow. But of course, as ever, here at the Independent Republic, we are ahead of the game. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Ian Collins coming up at one o'clock. He'll be here shortly before the news to tell us what's going on uh, on his show, of course, taking it all the way through until four. And then it's Mark Dolan, then it's James Whale later on, then Christo. All sorts going on uh, here at Talk Radio. We'll be keeping you abreast of everything uh, as it happens. Earlier on today, uh, just an hour or so ago, there was a decision made uh, by Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, uh, who were asked to investigate whether the police had acted unlawfully or perhaps overbearingly uh, when they uh, controlled that vigil in Clapham Common for Sarah Everard. Uh, it was revealed that they did not act inappropriately and they were not heavy-handed, which will come as a surprise to some people, uh, but probably not to Ken Marsh, uh, who's on the line now, Chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation. Ken, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Jared. Oh, oh sorry, I should say afternoon. It's already 12.30. I've oh, forgotten what the, yeah. where the time is. But listen, I, you'll be pleased with this, I would imagine. Um, well... Yeah, there's no need to be gloating about it because there's there's nothing in it that surprised me whatsoever. I called from it right from the first second, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I'm just disappointed the way other people have behaved in relation to this because uh, they want to put themselves in my colleague's shoes for a few minutes. Yes, and and you've always been very um, uh, sort of uh, consistent with saying that kind of thing. A lot of people have been critical of certainly some MPs, many of them from the Labour Party, who were kind of jumping all over the police saying uh, that it was very heavy-handed, they shouldn't have been manhandling women in that way. Um, but but this ruling would suggest that they were wrong about that. Well, of course they're wrong. They're, they're wrong 100%. Across all parties, I'm not singling out a party, it's all parties that have got on the bandwagon and done their usual. And it's now getting to a point that this is just too much. 
because we have to be able to police that fear or favour. We have to be able to act upon the ground. And when you've got members of public, because that's what they are, members of public giving running commentary as if they are the voice of all knowledge, I find it just absurd. Mm. I mean, what effect will this have? Because I think you and I spoke shortly after the um, the, the, the vigil, which mm. led to a protest, which kind of led to uh, you know a bit of a, a bit of a punch up for some for some people. Um, and I said it wasn't a great look, and I stick I stick by that because I still think it wasn't a great look. I accept that uh, the, 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 the 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 report has said that they didn't uh, do anything that was over the top. But still, I still, I still think police, individual police officers are, are a bit confused about what they're supposed to do, when they're supposed to do it, and, and with how much force they're supposed to use. So I agree with you it wasn't a great look. I, I'd agree with you 100%. But unfortunately, that at times is policing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and you have to take that within the context of what I'm saying. Sure. And you're quite right in saying that my colleagues are absolutely baffled at times, as to the new legislation, the speed of the change of it, what's required of them. Mm. You know, these people are omnicompetent. They're human beings. And you're asking them to do things different today than they did yesterday and different the day after that they did yesterday and today. You know, it just, it's, 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 it's baffling. And yeah. it's absolutely so difficult for them to, to deal with the challenges that are put forward in front of them and to be able to do it in a way that... Uh, is, is correct when we are on such a micro screen of scrutiny, mm. which I don't have a problem with. I don't have any problem with us being subject to scrutiny by the public. That is, that is our DNA. It's what we do. But, and there always has to be a but, you've got to accept, <laughs> by and large, we know exactly what we're doing and what we're instructed to do. It's a disciplined organisation. Mm. And I suppose it's difficult, isn't it, in this day and age of uh, of instant video and uh, you know iPhones yeah, and yeah. cameras on every single thing. I mean, I'm very careful, I have to say, about looking at videos on social media and, and doing anything with them because it's difficult sometimes to know the context. You know, it's yeah. hard to know what whether you're watching something that was at the end of something else. You don't know what happened before the bit that you're watching, if you know what I mean. I, I would urge people yeah. to be very careful about how they view that stuff. Well, the old adage of a picture tells a thousand stories, you know, and it's so true with what you're saying. I can't stand social media to the point that it's being used because it's biased. It's mm. unfair. Mm. All my colleagues have cameras on. You know, we're not trying to hide anything whatsoever. They are filming everything that is happening if they are uniformed officer. So by that sheer tracy, should accept we are there for scrutiny. Mm. But when you get an individual who chooses with their mobile to take a clip of eight seconds, you know, one of the ones that really got me was when you saw officers spin round and push their arms out as if they were attacking people. What you weren't seeing were my colleagues being spat at, kicked in the ankles with steel toe cats and things as they walked along, which made them react to what was happening. Because that's what they're taught to do. Yes. And one of the things that the report says is that uh, perhaps the police officers should have been better at identifying some of those sort of agent provocateurs because they're probably known to, to the police from other events anyway. Right. So that, that's a very good point. But if I said to you, you know, there were groups there, extreme hard left groups, mm. Sisters Uncut, for instance. Right. Well, they're very clever what they do because social media, they're savvy to it. 
So it's very difficult for our teams and groups to understand all these individuals. We know who they are, mm. but when they just pop up, then we have to deal dynamically with what's in front of us. Right. You know, it's all very well for armchair critics. Well, you should have been on top of that. You should have known they were coming. You should have had... Come on, do us, do us a bit of reality here and a bit of common sense and go back to doing what you do and leave us to do what we do. And I guess as well, they're also very good at making it look as bad as it did. Yeah, right? of course. Of so, course. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's a very clever posture and we're left you know, with what is about us. But, but you know, when I came out straight away and the commissioner and Steve House and said, we have no issue with a review of this. With an, You know, well, that tells you everything you want to hear. We, we're not hiding anything here. Do your investigation. And I knew what would come from it because I knew by speaking to my colleagues and senior officers what had taken place. Yes. I mean, one criticism as well is that there was insufficient communication between the individual yeah. police officers and the commanders. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, no, I'll take some of that on board. But again, you know, it's very easy to be critical of a dynamic situation. Yeah. There was an awful lot happening. We had to respond very quickly. And Gold was passing messages to Silver. You know, I, I take that on board. We can learn every time from something we do. I'm not going to sit here on the top of a hill going, we're amazing. Mm. We're brilliant. You know, we can learn from everything we do. But give us the opportunity to do just that rather than just chastising us any opportunity you get mm. for your own game. Yes. Wrong. No, I get that. Because also, of course, looking down uh, to Bristol where you've seen some terrible things going on and terrible attacks being made on the police by, by what I would call known assailants, right? Um, a lot of people have said to me, that's happening because of the way that the Bristol Mayor's Office and the way that the Bristol's kind of uh, uh, police in the first instance allowed that statue protest to go on, where they were able to yeah. drag a statue off, the, off its plinth, chuck it in the harbour, uh, and everybody stood back and said, that's fine. Well, yeah, I mean, what I would say is I've got colleagues from the Met driving up the uh, motorway now to Auckland, Bristol on aid um, to assist with what's going on. Mm. And, and it needs to be dealt with. It, it, you, you, can't, you can demonstrate in this country no issue whatsoever. Again, that's part of us. But when it becomes unruly, when it becomes unlawful, it needs to be dealt with very, very quickly. Mm. And, and as you quite rightly point out, when you stand and watch people commit criminal damage and you do nothing about it, then it becomes a problem because you're basically saying you can do what you want. Well, you can't do what you want in our society and we should deal with it instantly. Yes, although some people seemingly can do more than other people because I was talking earlier today about the Batley demonstration up at uh, up in Yorkshire yeah. where they're outside uh, a school now, been there for about a week, I think, practically, um, and nobody's arresting them. Now, one of the reasons given for why this was a uh, legitimate um, uh, re response to that vigil and the protest in Clapham Common uh, was that there was a fear that COVID would be spread. Well, how come that's not a fear in Batley? Yeah, well, I, I can't speak for Blackley because I speak for the Met, but, you know, they will have their, their, their plan as to what they're doing and how they're dealing with it. And I agree with you. We shouldn't have large groups gathering anywhere in this country at the mm. moment because of COVID. You know, I've been very consistent with what I've said and how I've said it. And in relation to the Met, we won't allow it. So the same uh, will happen again to any vigil, as far as you're concerned, Ken. As far as your police officers are concerned, they will behave exactly the same way uh, as they did at Clapham Common. No, as I said to you previously, we will take stock of what took place, and I'm sure there's things from it 
that we can learn and we can do differently. But on the whole, we will carry on policing without fear and failure, as we have done all the way through this pandemic. Very well said. Ken, thank you very much indeed. Ken Marsh, Chair of the Metropolitan Police Federation there, uh, talking about the decision that's been made uh, by Her Majesty's Inspectorate uh, today, in which they basically said that police at the vigil did their best to peacefully disperse the crowd. Officers remained calm and professional, even though they were subjected to abuse. They did not act inappropriately or in a heavy-handed manner. However, there was insufficient communication between police uh, and their commanders. So, you know, I think that's a pretty fair assessment, I would guess. Susan, has tweeted she says for crying out loud please can we leave the police alone their job is difficult enough as it is at the end of the day they are trying to maintain law and order in this massively populated country and which is not an easy task well i accept that however uh, as i said to ken marsh it was not a good look he agreed with me that it wasn't a good look while they haven't necessarily done anything wrong um, I think they do need to learn something from it, uh, which is that they shouldn't perhaps act as aggressively as that uh, unless we can be sure that they are facing aggression. And that is the bottom line. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.